Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And for those of you who listen regularly, you know that I always present an invitation at the end, letting people know that they can get in touch with us if they have questions or they have topics that they would like to see covered. And today's episode is going to deal with not one, but a number of requests we've had. And the question centers around this. Are we in the last days? And if so, what does that mean? And how should we orient ourselves? So, Charles, are we in the last days? It depends on what you mean by last days. (laughs) Um, That, of course, is a perennial question. And some branches of the church have been assuring us regularly that we are in the last days, which never seem to materialize. And that may sound like a question or a statement of doubt. But some of the claims that are made or answers to this question are worthy of serious dispute and doubt. And I think that the the key question for us is, what does the Bible teach us concerning these things? And not to focus our attention in terms of what God's plan is on the news headlines, which are almost impossible to avoid. And then there are the nefarious dealings of people behind the scenes who understand that there are some Christians who really worry about such things. And uh, they are happy to use that to their advantage to try to convince people that they had better be worried about this, that, or the other thing. So I think that the, the ultimate question is, what does the Bible say about the end times in its context, and what are, how does that affect us today? And I, I would add that end times and last days have to be clarified in terms of, are those phrases saying the exact same thing? For example, let, let's just talk about modern colloquialisms. Um, somebody who's about to graduate from high school is in the last days of his high school education. We wouldn't necessarily say, well, he's at the end of his life. This is his end times. After this, he's done. Although I suppose some people think that your best days are your high school days. So they might think that their life is over. But expressions and perspectives have contexts within the time that they're being used. Um, Words change over time. Ideas change over time. And so if you try to, as one person has put it, look at the headlines, look what's on your newsfeed, and then try to jam that into the scripture, that's actually the wrong way to approach understanding life. We should look at the scripture and then apply the scripture to what's happening, keeping in mind the purpose of the scripture. Yes, and I think the uh, along with that is the question is, does the Bible have a right to tell us what it means by those, those phrases, last days, end times, second coming of Christ? Or to put it another way, do we have an obligation to start with scripture in its context, in its cultural and linguistic and biblical context to say, what did this mean at that particular time? and the time in which it was written. You know, obviously, if a book like the book of Revelation, which regardless of a person's millennial views or views of eschatology, is almost universally agreed was written to a suffering, persecuted church um, in the early first century or mid-first century AD. And so we have to start with that reality, and that helps us further understand when terms like mark of the beast, prevented from buying and selling, these, these phrases had relevance to the people to whom they were written. And once we understand that, then we can move forward and say, how does that apply to us? I think it was the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, who in one of his very basic introductions to hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, the a text of scripture can only have one meaning. It may have a variety of applications, but there's only one correct interpretation uh, in, in its context of what that verse uh, would mean, for example. And and that's what's really important, I think, in helping to sort through all this, because you have people in various stages of understanding. The 
first century Christians who experienced the presence of Christ, his death and resurrection and ascension, and then all that's recounted in the book of Acts and in the letters that were written to the various churches, culminating in John's letter to the churches and the book of Revelation, to keep in mind that it was a revelation of Jesus Christ. It isn't a revelation of what's going to happen to you. It's what who was being revealed was Christ. And I think modern day people who, I think it was Gary DeMar who wrote a book called Last Day's Madness, that um, when he wrote that book, there was a whole group of people who were sure that they weren't going to be here much longer. The church was going to be raptured out. So they sold their possessions. And I was actually new to the faith in the early 80s and was sort of surprised that there were people who believed in this thing called the rapture, that there would be cars that suddenly had no drivers and there would be crashes and the, the church would be gone. Now, I thought it was way out there and weird, but it was enough to get me at least to look into the matter because I thought, wow, who wants to be around for that? Only to discover that that's not the only view. So if you are not literate in biblical imagery, which I believed the first century Jewish converts would have been, there are things that we have to sort of try to make up to make these things fit where they would have had an understanding of Old Testament images that were being revisited. Yeah, and one of, one of the challenges that we face in this is that our Lord Jesus Christ did not write a systematic theology and leave it for us. If he had done that, it, things would have been a lot simpler, <laughs> but he didn't. So in God's providence, it was the development of doctrine and belief over time with the followers of Jesus, the apostles, uh, and their successors interacting with the various controversies that arose over time that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the, the church was able to define certain things, and that's where we get our creeds and confessions from. And we get into problems in this particular area when people say, oh, well, I don't have to worry about anything the church has said for the past 2,000 years or what the Westminster Confession says or the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Creed of Chalcedon. Those things don't matter. I'm just going to start with what my Bible tells me and, by the way, what I'm seeing in the news headlines. Well, this is the challenge. And I want to just put out on the table from my standpoint as a pastor and someone who's been to seminary is that I fully acknowledge that this area of eschatology, the study of end times issues, is a very challenging one. And that historically, there have been two, maybe three different perspectives on this issue about the, the timing of Christ's return and the events leading up to it. So that right there shows us that this is an area where we should tread very carefully and that historically... I don't know, there may be some marginal groups that have said, unless you agree with this particular view of eschatology, you, you're not even considered a Christian. So that too shows that there's a little bit of latitude in this area. So what I'd like to say to people is, look, given these complexities, the best that we can hope for under God's guidance is to come to an understanding of this that best fits the circumstances of Scripture as humanly possible where we're able to do that. And, and recognize there may be some latitude. So that means that on something like, say, in Revelation 13, the reference to the mark, the beast causes people to receive. Well, that has to mean something very specific and, and very uh, particular. And there's going to be one interpretation or more that is more faithful to the facts of Scripture and one less. So those are the kind of choices we have to make in discussing and going forward. And, and I think that this is where it goes back to that if you're going to be in covenant with God, then you need to understand the terms of the covenant. That's a word that outside of reform circles, and sometimes even in reform circles, doesn't get defined very well. And so as you have a group of people who will use the kind of terminology that says, when I accepted Christ, it's very much in line with that they did something and then this happened, as opposed to God entering into a covenant with them. Nobody buys a car, buys a house, does anything a big purchase without there being some sort of agreement. And that agreement has provisions for things being followed. And it also has provisions if things are not followed. 
And so if you don't have that as a basis that, okay, I've, I've now come to an understanding of my need for Christ and that apart from him, I'm doomed, it behooves the believer to start reading the Bible, not only in terms of what it meant for the people who it was written to at the time, but also what can be applied to me today. But the problem is, is if you read what happened at a certain point in history, but you don't say, well, okay, how would these people have understood it? What were they expected to do as a result of hearing it and receiving it? Then you can come up with all sorts of fanciful ways to say, well, this is what it means. And then we'll um, spiritualize it without having a practical application. Yes, and the Lord has revealed on the pages of Scripture, beginning in Genesis right through Revelation, that the matter of covenant, the framework of covenant, is how he operates. And if you don't get that foundational perspective right away, then you're bound to go off the rails, maybe not in a major way, but maybe so, on various topics and issues. I mean, when God lays it out in terms of how he interacts with people, and again, the framework that he uses Well, we have an obligation to pay attention to that in terms of interpreting Scripture and what it means for us today. Now, the problem has been, and we might as well go ahead and introduce the the big word here, is dispensationalism. This rather novel and and the long history of Christian theology, our newer perspective on how the Bible is to be understood, has basically relegated a major portion of the Bible, the Older Testament, to being largely irrelevant and focusing entirely on the New Testament, and some of them, they just want to focus on the red letters, if they have a New Testament like that. So, as Gary North once said, they they consider the Old Testament the Word of God emeritus. And and when you do that, you're going to come up with distorted views of what the Scriptures actually teach, especially in this area of end times. But what I see in, in this approach is that eschatology, the issue of starting at a point and ending at a point and that history moving in a direction with a clearly defined goal uh, defined by God, this is one of the most important things in all of Scripture. Not necessarily dealing with, okay, what is the precise time of Jesus' return? What are the signs? But rather, generally, the Bible is an eschatological book. It has in its perspective a beginning point and then things happening and then God moving all of history toward the fulfillment and the expansion and the eventual dominance of his kingdom in history. When I first became a church-going person, I was introduced to some of these different terms, premillennial, amillennial, post, but you don't usually in most evangelical circles hear postmillennial, to be very frank, but yes. you would hear these things. And I remember people saying, don't worry about that. All right. The book of Revelation is very, very confusing. You have to be mature before you can really read it. And of course, now I look back and I say, that's not the caveat that's given at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It's not like go to seminary, go to Hebrew school before this will make sense to you. It was written to people who it was assumed it would make sense to. But there used to be this kind of funny thing, you know, I'm not pre, ah, or post, I'm a pan-millennialist, it'll all pan out in the end. And of course, you'd get a big laugh from the congregation, and I think it would put a lot of people in a position to say, I don't really have to understand this part, and I'll rely on experts to tell me what it means. Well, I think that's a faulty way to approach the scripture in the first place, but ultimately, and I used to tell my children this all the time, the future determines the present. You go, wait wait a second, the future hasn't even happened yet. Well, if I am backing out of my driveway, where I intend to go will determine whether I turn right or I turn left. So the future very much is going to impact how you live in the present. And one of the things that happens with this idea of the rapture being imminent is a lot of people think that their primary task is to get ready to exit as opposed to living faithfully for God today. That is a a very apt comparison or um, analogy because the backing out of the driveway part, the Lord declares in Genesis that there will be this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but then he declares, 
the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now that is not something that happens immediately, but it's the car backing out of the driveway throughout the path of history that leads to that head crushing culminating at Calvary and then the expansion of the kingdom from there. Now, we've mentioned the term a couple of times already, and you just said it, uh, the term rapture. So maybe we can go ahead and, and say a few words about that term and what it, what's understood by it. If you get your dusty Strong's concordance or your, your computer or web-based concordance and look for the word rapture, unless you're using some bizarre paraphrase translation, you won't find that word in any English Bible. The reason is, is it comes from Latin. Uh, the Latin Vulgate translation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 uses a word there that is translated in most texts as caught up, the, the Latin term rapiermur, R-A-P-I-E-M-U-R, which of course is a form of another Latin term. But that's where the, the root of the word rapture comes from. And uh, it, it, is, it doesn't exist in the English Bible. But the, the modern doctrine, the way it's been interpreted from that passage and a few others, itself is a novel, recent teaching in the history of the church. No one had ever heard of the so-called pre-tribulational rapture, that as we move through time, the, the church will lose ground, evil will increase to the point where things are a, a, a flood tide of evil is about to be released and the, the Antichrist is about to arrive, but the church will be caught up in the air, raptured, to use their term, and then all hell breaks loose on earth, but the, f the followers of Jesus will have to just sit that one out. They won't be affected by it because they'll be raptured up uh, into the sky. That's what that pre-tribulation rapture teaching is in a very, very small nutshell. But the point is, no one had ever heard that teaching prior to the early 1800s. And the source of it is somewhat controversial. It, it is pretty much correct that the, the teaching of the rapture, as it's known today, came out of a movement in England called the Irvingite movement, named after a man last name Irving, who was what we would today call a charismatic Pentecostal type. And it was either himself or sometimes it, there's a woman referred to as the origin of it, Mary MacDonald, I think her name was, who saw visions and had dreams and prophecies and this sort of thing. And she was the one who uttered something uh, about this teaching. Prior to that time, it was completely unknown in the history of the church. I'm just going to backtrack. I don't like to use the term devil's advocate because nobody ever wants to be an advocate for the devil, but I'm thinking of the questions that might arise. So someone might go back and say, okay, go to your concordance and you won't find the word Trinity either. However, the doctrine of the Trinity is there. So the concordance argument is useful, but more than whether or not the term actually appears, you going ahead and explaining the translation and then going back to the early 1800s and saying, okay, so somebody grasped onto this idea and then started promoting it. So the question that comes to mind is, why do you suppose that person or those persons suddenly found or discovered something that the church had not known? I don't know that there's an answer to that question other than these sort of, if you'll excuse the expression, freaky things happen. You know, I know something about the history of the Pentecostal movement in this country, in these United States. And one of the major branches of Pentecostalism are the oneness Pentecostals who deny that there's a Trinity, but they also believe that you must be baptized in the name of Jesus only. So any Trinitarian baptism is completely unacceptable to them. And the reason they think that, there was a big Pentecostal camp meeting somewhere in the early 1900s, and some dear Pentecostal saint was studying his Bible late at night with a candle burning and suddenly realized that in the book of Acts, everybody who was mentioned as having been baptized in water, well, they were baptized into the name of Jesus only. And according to the legend, he ran through the camp, waking everybody up saying, I've discovered this great new truth in scripture. We must be baptized in the name of Jesus only. So why did he figure, what, what, you know, there's no real explanation as to why he did that. These, the people who originated the pre-trib rapture teaching were not theologians, they weren't scholars. So I think it's an open question, but the point is there were people who latched onto it for various historical reasons. And because of, there's a lot of things that would go into understanding how this developed and why it had proliferated so widely. I would refer people to a book that they can purchase from the Chalcedon Foundation bookstore, The Incredible Schofield and His Book, 
that chronicles a lot of the history that we're, we're talking about today. If you want to know more in depth, I would recommend that book. However, let's put this out on the table. Yes, the word rapture does not appear in a concordance. The idea is there in 1 Thessalonians, because Paul clearly says, and I'll read it from the ESV, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So there is a reference to a catching up. Again, part of the novelty of the modern rapture teaching is that it creates a two-stage resurrection, which, again, no one had ever heard of or or thought of before, because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible, if you want to use the term rapture, does refer to it in that verse, but it's only something that happens toward the very end at the return of Christ, and it happens only once, and then follows the consummation and the uh, expansion of the kingdom or the coming down of the new Jerusalem. There's not a secret rapture and then a flood tide of evil, and, and then Christ returns and defeats the Antichrist and the thousand-mere millennial reign from Jerusalem and all the rest of it, and then another resurrection. So clearly, there's a lot to unpack here, and for people who have never, like for example, when I first heard it, it wasn't something I had been raised on. I thought it was strange, and when I actually brought it up to someone who actually also happened to be the person who introduced us to Chalcedon, his recommendation was to read the scripture for what it said, not for what other people said it said, which I think is a great thing to do for anybody who's new to the faith. Um, Don't give them a bunch of authors at first to read. You need to read this person or that person. Have them start reading the scripture from the point of view of their being spoken to by God, because that's what the word of God is, God speaking to us through his word. But it's easy to get caught in the weeds and miss the fact that every word of scripture is useful for us to grow in our faith, to establish morality and ethics on God's terms, and then how to live seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So I think the whole, um, what I've heard people describe as rapture mania or last day's madness, basically gives them an out. In other words, if I told you the whole city is going to burn down, but don't worry, Charles, you're not going to be there when it happens. There's a certain amount of comfort that goes with, well, I don't want to be burned up. So do you suppose that this whole idea of being raptured out is this idea that we won't have to face hard times and it gives people a whole different view of how they should then live. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it functions on some level for perhaps many people who believe this as an escape plan. And it, it does remove the responsibility for kingdom building. Now, that's part of the conflict between a full-orbed biblical perspective on history and those who deny that because their perspective is, well, you people are wasting your time. You, you want to bring in the kingdom, as they say. Well, no, we want to be faithful to the Great Commission. It was Jesus who said, go and make the nations my disciples. Those are marching orders. That's not an escape plan. That's a work order to move forward, to keep going. And again, going back to the very beginning, the perspective is to use the t- title of a book we mentioned last week. It's an eschatology of victory, not of retreat or escape. So uh, people who embrace this teaching, they are well-intended. And like you, when I began understanding what it meant to be a Christian, I was attending broadly type evangelical churches where the uh, rapture teaching was an important issue and that everybody was reading the same Hal Lindsey books and the rest of it. But I'll never forget watching a a local Christian TV network in the place where I lived at the time. And a woman had just published a book about these issues. And specifically, even then, that was in the 1970s. We were supposedly in the last days then, as I mean, that meant imminent. That didn't mean 2,000 years later. It meant like within the next five or six years, uh, the rapture is going to happen and we'll all be gone. Mm -hmm. But she wrote this book called 666, When Your Money Fails. And in that book, she argued that the Antichrist was alive at that time. And you want to know who she said the Antichrist was? She identified him. It was Anwar Sadat, the guy who was the president or premier of Egypt at the time. And the poor guy, you know got himself murdered not long after that. So, so much for that theory. And this is, again, another one of the problems of these faulty teachings is that sooner or later, they fail and they don't work. And you mentioned Gary DeMar earlier. Gary has done some superb work in talking about these issues. And I learned a lot from his book, 
books, including the one that you mentioned earlier. And he's the one that made the point that the reason these types of things always fail, they fail all the time. Even if you have to wait 10, 20, 30 years to see them fail, they always will fail because they're inaccurate. They don't fit what scripture actually teaches. You know, it's funny. I did interview Gary earlier this year, and he said he wasn't ever making this particular topic. He didn't think this was something he would write about, except he was always encountering people who were talking about their pastor or preacher saying that the rapture was going to happen, that he felt like he had to do something because he was being sucked into discussions about it. So in Gary DeMar's style, what does he do? He writes a book or writes a series of books. Let's use two words that are not commonly used today. Those would be heresy and blasphemy. Now, some people don't want to offend other people by calling their view of something a heresy or a blasphemy. But it seems to me that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he wasn't saying, do this until it stops working, and then you'll all get to go, and we'll go to plan B. It sounded like Jesus had one plan and the promise that he would be with them until the end of the age meant that there was going to be success. He wasn't sending them out on a suicide mission, correct? That's absolutely correct. And it doesn't mean the mission would not have its difficulties and setbacks. And I think that we can safely say, at least here in these United States, we're in a setback phase right now in one sense. But I think it was another person that you interviewed, George Grant, who I first saw making this statement years ago, is that in God's plan, the church is plan A, and there is no plan B. Right. So the the idea that the church, the church's ultimate destiny is to be taken off the face of the earth in a rapture, because in essence, the church will have failed in its mission of evangelizing and making the nations Christ's disciples, is simply not supported in scripture. But it is work, and to mention another author that has been influential in my thinking on this, uh, Dr. Ken Gentry, you know, he makes the point in some of his writings that when we see how Scripture operates and what we learn from the framework of Scripture itself, God works over time in a gradualistic, progressive way to accomplish the expansion of his kingdom. It started in Genesis. It went through the various phases of older covenant Israel, culminating in Jesus. He doesn't operate according to the catastrophic model. That, that's the current focus of many of these heretical teachings or false teachings, is that God operates you know, through a catastrophe and these great flashing atomic-type events. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Uh, God works over time gradually, moving things forward as his people are faithful in following uh, the path. Sort of like the mustard seed, a small seed, but then it grows. So let me ask you, if you would— to define heresy, and should we or should we not view certain prevailing opinions in the church with that kind of mentality? What, what makes something a heresy as opposed to something that's covenantally faithful? Well, any, anything that anybody disagrees with what I say, that's heresy. <laughs> oh, okay. That's easy. Yeah. Easy, yeah. Well, it is a challenging topic. I mean, the, the Greek a term from which we get the word simply means an opinion. And in this case, it would mean a contrary opinion. But it goes back to something I said a moment ago, and that we do not have from any official New Testament author, whether it be the, the author, authors of the four gospels or Paul, a, a, a book of systematic theology and saying, okay, when it comes to this issue, say, of the end times, the last days, here it is. I've written it out for you. These things have to be understood and interpreted. So over time, the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, began to define certain things because in the earliest days, nobody really thought that much about, well, what exactly is the Trinity? What does exactly mean for the Holy Spirit to proceed from the Father or the Father and the Son? And with the earliest Christians being of Hebraic mindset, an Old Testament mindset, gradually over time being displaced by people from a Greek cultural background, very different questions began to be raised. So the church had to come up with some framework within itself to say, okay, this we believe, these are the things most surely believed among us as true. And these are the things that we find 
across the churches of Jesus Christ, and I'm talking very, very early in the history of the church, where we all agree, this is what Scripture teaches. It's like the, the canon of Scripture. These four Gospels are the ones that all of our churches have been using, and we believe these are the ones that the Spirit has led us to accept, not the Gospel of Thomas, not the Apocalypse of Peter, all these other things. These four. And so once we have that set down, then we have a framework to decide and define is this acceptable teaching? Now, in the case of the Protestant Reformation and our heritage, you know, our reformers face this issue too. And that's why most of them, like Calvin and Luther, they didn't see themselves as starting new churches. They wanted a church that was reformed according to the scriptures. And so the scripture is the ultimate creedal statement, if you will, but it has to be applied. And so we come up with things or we are bequeathed things such as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all of these things, with the exception perhaps of the Apostles' Creed, have originated in dealing with teachings or opinions among various Christian theologians or leaders in the early history of the church who began teaching things that were not universally known or accepted. And so the question had to be hammered out, do we really believe this? And if so, why? Or if not, why not? So I can see a question arising. How do we know we have the correct canon? How do we know that Matthew's gospel, Mark's, Luke's, and John's were correct. Was it a democratic vote? Because the question arises, especially at a time, but what's promoted is democracy. You know, what more people think that's the way we should proceed. I know the answer to my question, but I would like you to answer the question How do we know that the Bible we have is the Bible in its entirety, nothing more and nothing less? Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> I'm asking you. <laughs> okay. Well, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, has an answer to that question, that the canon of Scripture was set by various church councils who define what books would be included in the New Testament and what books wouldn't. However, the reality is, is that although there was some of that, but the definition or the defining of what constitutes the four Gospels and the rest of the books in the New Testament, for example, that was based on the fact that the churches had universally been using these documents and these particular books all along. So that had already been set in place early on in the history of the church and the, and the, the quote, official church, which was the Catholic church. It wasn't Roman Catholic at the time, but it was the universal church simply acknowledged what was operating. So the, again, to, to refer to the Reformation at that time, there was some reconsideration of these facts when uh, uh, other so-called deuterocanonical books or apocryphal books had been introduced and used by the Catholic Church, and this goes back into some complicated history of the Latin version of the Bible and, and this, that, and the other. But Christians can be very fully, absolutely confident that we have God's Word in its entirety and all the Bibles that we possess, assuming that they are produced you know, from an orthodox, small o orthodox uh, perspective. So we, we have no reason to be doubtful or con concerned about those things, unless we doubt the very existence of God and the truths that are the foundation of Scripture. And that's something that really impacted me. I remember listening to a sermon series on the subject and saying, do you really think the God of all who created all would leave us without a reliable word for us to live by? And so if you say, well, it could be wrong, well, then we're looking at things from a very man-centered point of view. God who established all, whose the history is his story, isn't about to leave his church without the instruction manual. Now, as you said, over time, different people may interpret parts of the instruction manual differently, but most parts of the instruction manual are very clear. So you won't find in the instruction manual an approval of many of the things that are now falling under the category, if you don't believe these things and say yes to these things, that somehow you're a bad person. No, the Bible already talks about those things and in such a way as to not make those things like, I wonder if there are 56 genders or if there's two. The Bible makes it very clear from the beginning there's two. And any deviation from that must be viewed as a deviation from God's word, not he forgot to tell us those things. Yes, and I think for the topic that we are focusing on, he, he, he absolutely did speak clearly and has told us some very specific things about the movement of history toward its consummation in the, in the future. 
there are terms in the New Testament, unless we have the proper context, lead us to be concerned that these sorts of great momentous events are soon coming. But again, it goes back to interpretation. Did the Lord intend for us in the 21st century to understand that as soon in our time? Or is it not that the people to whom it was written had that expectation? And when we, when we delve into that, we see that that fits the facts far better than that absolutely none of this has been fulfilled. And that when, say, for example, John, in, in writing the book of Revelation, speaking to churches seeking hope and assurance, told them, don't worry, uh, Christ will triumph, but you're still going to suffer because this has something to do with people 2,000 years from now that you've never heard of. That doesn't, right, doesn't right. make any sense. You know, I, I joke with people who are hearing sermons about the rapture is imminent, being told, you know, we might not be meeting next week because we could all be raptured out. I will say, let me ask you a question. Do you ever look up the weather to see how you're going to dress? And they go, yeah, all the time. And I said, so when you when you get your weather on your phone or wherever you get it, and it says at two o'clock today, it's going to be 84 degrees. Do you assume that that's being written for people 2000 years from now, that it has nothing to do with the temperature or the weather today? And they're, of course not. Then why do we think that this book that we call the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ was written to people who basically were not going to be comforted by anything because it wasn't written to them. Soon doesn't mean soon if what's shortly going to come to pass doesn't mean what's shortly going to come to pass. Then you have to ask yourself the question, how is this a comfort for the saints of the first century? Yeah, I like to use the analogy if uh, you and your husband have invited my wife and I over to your house for dinner and say we live 10 miles down the road from you, and I text you or call you and say, Andrea, we're just about there. We'll be there soon. And I, and I don't show up for 20 years. Uh, <laughs> there, there's some disconnect between what I said and what you understood that I meant. And if, if we're going to function in, a, in, a, in an intelligent, rational way in society uh, without things just completely falling apart, words have to have a particular meaning. And they do have meaning, and the context is what determines it. And in this case, it's the biblical context that we start with. I, I want to, if, if it's okay, jump to this idea of uh, the mark of the beast, because this is a, an, another major part of this rapture teaching. And as it comes from Revelation 13, where there is a reference to the, the rise of the beast. And there's been confusion over the many, many centuries, if, if not the past century or more, about the number of the beast being conflated with the mark of the beast. They're not the same thing. I don't want to talk about the number of the beast right this moment, but the idea of the mark of the beast, this uh, domineering figure uh, spoken of in Revelation, is that he will cause all, both great and small, to receive this mark. And if you don't have the mark, you can't buy and sell and, and all this sort of thing. Well, if your starting point is what some fantastic best-selling book on Bible prophecy has told you, that means, then you're not starting at the right place. And by the way, to follow up on a note that you said just a moment ago, I think one of the authors of one of these famously, fabulously best-selling prophecy books was asked a similar question one time, like your weather question. If you believe the rapture is imminent, why did you just buy a home with a 20-year mortgage? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. But th the context of this mark of the beast business, it is a counterfeit. It is an opposite of what we read, for example, all the way back in Exodus 13, 16, and reflected in Deuteronomy 6, 8, where the Lord tells the older covenant church, you will take my laws and my commandments, and you will bind them as frontlets on your eyes and on your forehead and on your arm, a figurative reference. In other words, the forehead is understood to be the place where your mind is. And so God's law will be in your mind. You know, it will be on your right hand where, you know, you, you accomplish things. It's a symbol for operating in a way that is in accord with God's law. It's not meant to be taken literally. So it goes back to the idea that Christianity needs to be a well-thought-out, continually learned thing so that you read history from a biblical point of view. Some of the people I've been talking to if you say AD 70, if you say the destruction of Jerusalem, they'll look at you sort of blankly, 
Like, um, I don't know about that one, but I do know the invasion of the Normandy invasion. And I do know about the Battle of Gettysburg. But this other stuff is so far in the past that it doesn't really matter. And yet, if you're going to understand what Jesus was saying, for example, in Matthew 24, and then what the church was being prepared for in various epistles culminating in the book of Revelation, you'll have a different view because you'll say, oh, okay, this is what this means. This is how I should be oriented. They don't know history. So when you say things like Josephus verified this or whatever, they're like, who's Josephus? Maybe the state schools have succeeded in what they attempted to do to make it so that people don't care about anything other than right now. Yes, and I think equally the, the churches have failed in that mission. When we look at the significant rise of this type of pre-tribulation rapture teaching, it really took off in the late 1800s uh, in the English-speaking world with the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. And it was the first time any Protestant Bible since the G original Geneva Bible had study notes, and they were all geared toward promoting this idea. And this was about the time of the rise of Darwinian evolutionary theory. And, you know, you, you had scientism making headway and inroads into people's thinking in the West with, you know, complicated formulas and being able to chart things out. And so the dispensationalists copied that to some extent with these fantastic charts of the various stages of Bible prophecy. And you can see some of these things in a, in a book like uh, uh, Dispensationalism by Clarence Bass. I think his name is with, it's just a page after page of these various fanciful, fantastic charts of various timings of things that are said to be happening in, in the imminent future, but with abs absolutely total historical vacuum because of the, the point that you just made. At the time this began to assert itself, many of the traditional Protestant churches were involved in battles for the faith dealing with liberalism and the denial of the basic Christian doctrines. I mean, eschatology was only a, a minor part of that. When you've got professors in seminaries and heads of you know, Christian colleges saying there was no such thing as a resurrection or a virgin birth, you've got some bigger fish to fry than the, the, the timing of the second coming. Of course, they denied the second coming altogether, many of these liberal types. But I think at the time that these teach, teachings began to proliferate, the orthodox seminaries and, and schools, like say, for example, old Princeton, were fighting other battles. And so other people like Dwight Moody and others started schools uh, that were very low-key, and people began to enroll in these schools and, and take these classes. They would have Bible camps and Bible conferences, and so uh, this teaching just spread like wildfire in, in churches that were beginning to decline doctrinally, and this seemed to be very faithful to Scripture. I mean, after all, look at the chart. You know, It flows mm -hmm. from one thing to the next. Right. So I'm thinking, let's go back to the book of beginnings, Genesis. There's every major doctrine of scripture is outlined in the book of Genesis. But as soon as people start doubting what the Bible says, because the scientist says something different. So six days of creation, please, that's ridiculous. That could never happen. We have our charts. So they show you charts. And so those charts are supposed to make you say, oh, well, maybe this was meant to be figurative as opposed to literal. Well, if you approach the Bible from the point of view that you're going to judge it, then you are not in the right frame of mind in terms of receiving God's word. One of my favorite portions of scripture, it says, let God be true and all men liars. doesn't matter if out of a hundred people, a hundred say, this is so, but it's contradictory to the word of God. God's word is true. And that's only something you can say by faith. And it's not a blind faith. It's a confirmed faith because the Holy Spirit is the only person who can help you understand that. On your own, you're going to want to make yourself the authority or someone else. The Holy Spirit allows us to say, we are slaves to Christ. We are submitted to him. Yes, and we are inevitably and unavoidably going to be submitted to someone or something. The question is who or what, and what is the starting point for us in understanding to whom should we be submitted? 
what is the basis of the justification of the knowledge that we claim to have about the world and, and all these things that we are talking about? I'd like to ask you a question, if I may, because I know that you are a mentor and you are involved in, in teaching women in, in particular in, in various topics and subjects. What has been your experience in terms of the, the folks that you interact with? Do they bring a lot of this type of uh, end times teaching in, into your interactions with them? And do you have any kind of correction or learning time that you have to spend on that topic in particular? First of all, the answer to your question by and large is no. I'm yeah. dealing with women in various stages of being a wife and a mother. And if you happen to have three to 10 children, which a lot of them have, you're more concerned with you know, how we're going to live today. <laughs> how, do, how do we make this all work and have it glorify God and make sure that our family is moving ahead in a correct way? But they all come from different backgrounds. And so I would say there's an undercurrent from either how they were taught as children or not, but it usually doesn't come up until we're talking application. And I try to make my studies and my mentoring very much into how do we apply God's word to our life? Because if we can't apply it, then what's the point of knowing it? It's not that it's, it can't be true, but if it has nothing to do with me. So I would say, by and large, it's not what's on people's mind. What I can say, though, is that if that's something that has been cemented in the back of their mind, and they're saying, it doesn't really matter because I'm not going to be here anyway, it does change their orientation, and maybe they're not as concerned about providing a Christian education because what will it matter anyway? So the women I actually mentor who want to be mentored by me are usually open to the idea that we have to look to the future and, and, and be faithful in the present and going into the future, where a lot of the people who, quite frankly, aren't that interested in what I have to say very much like this idea, tomorrow will be raptured. Yeah, and I think that the key point there is oriented toward the future, because as we've said previously, those who promote and have embraced these teachings, their view of the future is very different than that of what the Bible teaches. And we find, too, a lot of people would not necessarily say be interested in what you are doing and what you are teaching, because their attitude is, well, I'm fine for the state to educate my children or to raise my children, or I, I don't have time for that. My immediate issue is going to my Pilates class or what, whatever the thing may be. But if you are of a mind that you are under, ob, under obligation to your king and you have a mission, then your orientation is going to be very much oriented toward the future and being successful, what the Lord has commanded you to do. And that involves every area of life. Yes. The book of Revelation talks about the mark of the beast, but it also talks about the mark of Christ on his people. And too many people focus on that aspect. They focus on the other thing. If people are operating from the standpoint that it's all going to fail and fall apart anyway, then so be it. You know, as far as the, the mark of the beast is concerned and, and the mark generally, well, look, if a person is completely hooked into the modern media culture, if your life is defined by network sitcoms and the, the mainstream news media, you've already got the mark of the beast. That's the mark. The fact that you, you obey and you operate from the framework of what fallen humanity is given you and how you define what life is and how you live your life. And, and that's the larger point of what we, I was mentioning earlier as far as uh, Revelation 13 and, and Exodus and Deuteronomy. The point is you will bear the mark of what you follow and what you believe. It will have a visible evidence of how you define your life. As we mentioned last week, Francis Schaeffer, it's not just that there's a God, but that's also that he's spoken. And if he's spoken, we have to pay attention to him. Because if he's really God and he's really spoken, then he has absolute authority over everything. And so, therefore, what we think about the future, we have first and foremost to pay attention to what he says about it and what we need to be doing in, in terms of our involvement with it. So, as I've been rereading Paradise Restored by Chilton, I realize how much of a present time orientation I have had. And it's helped 
reorient me. So for example, you think, oh, bad times are coming. We might experience a very long time of oppression. But if you look at the 20th century and you look at how far we're into the 21st century, from a certain set of eyes, we have been oppressed as a nation, as Americans and and different parts of the world by statist thinking, by statist planners, and by the ultimate bankruptcy of humanism. So in actual fact, instead of bewailing that it's getting worse and worse, maybe we should look at it that this fever is about to break and God is going to reward those of us who endeavor to be faithful and are more concerned with rebuilding the walls than observing how destroyed they are or might become. And I, Yes, and I think that uh, over time, the Lord raises up various peoples, churches, denominations, movements that make that corrective where the maybe so-called official church or official movements have fallen away from that and have been so mesmerized by the swan song of the world that they are overly pessimistic and overly not focusing on a victorious, triumphant future orientation for the church. And certainly David Chilton in that excellent book, Paradise Restored, talks about this, and that's a great place for any listeners to to get a further uh, understanding of what we are saying. But I believe it was Dr. Rush Dooney who, in my listening to one of his lectures, pointed out that the the statement that's often misunderstood in the King James translation, that the, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I believe this is in Matthew 16, maybe. I can't remember the exact reference, but the literal meaning of the, of, the, of the terminology there is not that the church is cowering under the onslaught of hell. It's just the opposite, is that the gates of hell won't be able to withstand the onslaught of the church. The problem is the church has been misunderstanding it at various times in a completely different way, the wrong way. And so the attitude is not one of triumphant courage and uh, looking forward. It is a cowering and hiding and waiting, you know, for the rapture to take care of everything. Rush Dooney, aside from writing his books, had the regular publication that would come out monthly called the Chalcedon Report and contained often in the Chalcedon Report were these position papers. And Mark Rush Dooney, his son, has seen fit to keep Dr. Rushdunian's writings available. And so these position papers were compiled in a book or a three-volume set, An Informed Faith. Well, I first read these in Chalcedon reports that we would get in the mail once a month, but now I'm getting a chance to reread them. And so the dates on some of them will be 1987. And when you know we do this as part of our devotion, I'll say to my husband, what were we doing in 1987? Or what were we doing in 1993? Or this was written in 1980. We weren't even Christians yet. When I first read these, he would talk about the collapse of humanism. It would fall under its own weight. When I would read it, I would say, well, okay, he's seeing something I don't see. I'll I'll take his word for it. But to be honest with you, Charles, I I said, well, I don't know if I agree with that or not. I, I don't have any reference point. Well, now I'm back rereading them, and I'm thinking, wow, he really saw the implications of attitudes and perspectives. And so now I actually find myself excited over the challenge of the collapse of humanism. That means we have to be building. So when it falls apart, when people decide, there's no way I want to put my kids back in state schools. This COVID thing has taught me it's just the wrong way to go, that we have to be ready to build and help them. That's what reconstruction is all about. It isn't saying that, you know, we're just building this edifice and the, the accusation is you're just trying to bring in the kingdom. No, God's responsible for the kingdom. We're responsible to be faithful. So we see humanism collapsing. We see policies that are changed when the new guy gets into off. Yeah, we can be aware of it, but we've got to be about our father's business, not about how to try to stop these guys from doing things. You know, Moses and the people had to get to the Red Sea. 
There wasn't an instruction manual that said, this is how you make the Red Sea part. No, that was God's doing, but they had to be there to walk through. And that's the encouragement that I have with people who want to learn and build because we keep getting ready for our Red Sea moment, but we have to be there to walk through. You know, it's interesting that you uh, made that statement at, at the beginning there that uh, about Dr. Rustuni's writings. I was actually just yesterday having a conversation with one of the elders at our church who regularly teaches Sunday school. And I've been preaching through the book of Exodus and relying on a lot of Dr. Rustuni's insights. And this man told me that he, he had been reading, I forgot what the book was that Dr. Rustuni had written, but he said, I could not believe I'm sitting here reading this. And it's like, he, he's looking at the news reports from yesterday mm-hmm. and what he's describing. And I said, yes, it is incredible. It's not because he had some sort of weird, magical, supernatural insight into the future. It's just that he understood the implications of a humanistic worldview and its collapse and the things that historically have inevitably followed whenever these things happen. And the, the thing is that the reason it seems so unusual is that he's the only one who was doing that. He was the only one who was writing about these subjects and talking about these big ticket issues from a profoundly biblical standpoint. And being maligned by many, disregarded by a lot. And those faithful people who back in the early and mid-60s decided that his scholarship was worthy of support, we can thank them that there is a Chalcedon Foundation today because they were building for the future. They weren't going to necessarily experience what understanding that we have now with a lot of people embracing this idea Back then, it was just a few. Well, keying off on some things that he himself had said in in previous years about other people, uh, but in this case, I think it's true of his situation and what happened to him. He was resented by lesser men and hated for his virtues and not his vices, but he didn't let that stop him from doing the work the Lord called him to do and pointing us in the direction. It doesn't, and, and he demonstrated this in his life. He rarely responded publicly to critics because he had other things to be about, his father's business, so to speak. And I think that's an important guide and pointer for us that, yes, uh, it's amazing to sit and see how humanism is collapsing and, and how it was described. But what are we going to do about it? What movements are we taking? Because this is happening in real time now, as we see. And so those churches and those Christian groups that aren't prepared they may be in for a rude awakening when things continue down the path and they're still on top of the mountain waiting to be raptured when Christ is simply waiting for them to get to work. Right. People who say they know that Christ is coming right away and we have to be ready, a lot of them live beyond that theology. They have their kids in Christian schools. They are homeschooling. They are supporting Christian ministries with their tithes and offerings. So sometimes their actions aren't in alignment with their thinking. And that's why the books that we've recommended might give them a big sigh of relief to say, what I'm doing isn't futile. It's actually in line with what the Holy Spirit's directing me. Indeed. And for that, we are grateful. One last recommendation book-wise is Rushduni's book, Thy Kingdom Come, which are studies in Daniel and Revelation. And anybody who is familiar with how those two books are united and to be understood, or in some cases misunderstood, would benefit from not only reading the book, but there's a whole series of lectures that's customary. Rush Juni would do lectures and then he would take those lectures and he would put them into a book. So you can access those both at the Chalcedon site. And it's the sort of thing that I, I wouldn't say, make sure this is the one thing that you study and you get right so that you're able to respond to all sorts of critics. Yeah, you will. But I think it's encouragement along the way that we see that God has it all under control and it really doesn't depend on us. And to me, that's a great comfort. It is indeed. And it's my hope that this discussion will be beneficial and helpful to people who genuinely struggle with these things. And if there are those who have come across this audio presentation who have strong disagreement with it, to maybe encourage them to look more deeply 
into what the Christian church and theology have always believed in terms of the future. And write to out of the question podcast at gmail.com if Charles can answer any of your additional questions. <laughs> well, that's one advantage of hearing the, the lectures that Dr. Rushduni gave in addition to the books, because as you well know, he always ended those presentations, be they sermons or lectures, with that trademark phrase Are there any questions? Are there any questions first on our subject and then anything else? Well, thanks, Charles. I appreciate your willingness to talk about this. A lot of people shy away from this topic, but I'm glad you don't. Thank you, Andrea. Look forward to our next podcast. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.